The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joel Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 7200. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. How often do you wonder how you squeeze more efficiency out of your marketing and advertising spend? In other words, how do we generate even more leads for less money, driving our cost per lead down? To answer that question, Brad Smith. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joel. Looking forward to it. Hey, man. So um, this is like an age-old uh, problem that companies have. They want to uh, acquire their customers for the best price they can. It seems like the choices have gotten a little skinnier than they used to be, that uh, there, there are less choices, and those choices are more money. So you've got some ideas, right? Yes, definitely. We're going to talk a lot about how to kind of compare those options and, and figure out like where, where it makes the most sense. Do you go like all the way back to the days of newspapers and magazines? Or are we starting in the digital age? We're starting, I guess, around the cusp of the digital age. A long time ago, I worked with my dad's commercial real estate company. And at the time, it's still kind of like this, but at the time, especially, it was, it was very much old school. Uh, you make deals on the golf course and on the convention floor. And as like a you know, college kid at the time, high school kid, and then college kid, that, that limits your options in terms of people taking you seriously and actually like getting any meaningful work out of that. So it was around the same time that we actually um, redeveloped uh, my dad's websites. And I started getting into all this stuff like SEO, we'll get into more detail on and started learning that this is actually kind of like a brand new way we could start growing the business outside of the old traditional method. So it was kind of like in that turning point, I guess. So when was that around 2000, maybe? Yeah, exactly. I still think that the biggest deals are done on golf courses. It's, it's yep. what I do. Uh, people who are probably a little older than you and uh, it's just kind of how it happens. But so we're talking about though, you know, creating brand new relationships with prospects, not taking people on golf courses just yet. So that, that happens at a later time in the cycle. And, yep. and uh, you know, as a young guy, by the way, don't discount the value of doing that. No, I don't. <laughs> What's funny is our, so uh, I run, um, 
two digital marketing agencies and our best leads still come from personal referrals. Yeah, of course. Um, the, of course. the trick is like you're saying, it's, it's the initial discovery and visibility. So it's like, how do you just get people to know who you are? It is absolutely shocking to me how many relationships I have really, really good, deep relationships started somehow online. You know, that they started at either LinkedIn or some other place, totally online, and they over time have morphed into something that's very substantial. So so let's talk about this. So uh, we're talking about, you know, companies that have advertising departments, they're out there putting stuff out there, and they may be moderately satisfied. Maybe they're buying Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads, they're, they're trying to, you know, build their databases. What What's the big problem that, that companies are having when they're doing this? Is there like a single problem that you put your finger on or they're doing everything wrong? They're doing the right things. There's two problems. There's there's external forces working against them. Number one is the, it's what's called the law of shitty click-through rates. That's the law of shitty click-through rates? Is that, is that in the marketing is, textbook yes, 101? Sure. That's the technical <laughs> definition. O- over time, your results from whatever method you're using are going to become less and less. And as a result of more people jumping into it, it's going to become a lot more expensive. So perfect example. Why, okay. Yeah. Why, why do they necessarily go down over time? Because uh, it becomes a lot more commoditized and people stop paying attention. So a perfect example is banner ads. When banner ads first came out 15 years ago, the click-through rate was extremely high. The, banner, the, the average click-through rate on a banner ad today in like a Facebook banner ad, for instance, is what? Like less than a percent? Yeah. So that's yeah. one problem. And then the other problem is the competition is getting savvier. So as more of your competitors start putting money into the same channel, uh, the, the cost to compete just continues to rise. And so you've got to have these like, opposing forces of um, you have these small windows of opportunity. Uh, and even, even if you look at things like LinkedIn's algorithm, especially in the last year or so, Facebook over the last two, three years, Instagram over the last two, three years, these companies are making it harder and harder and more expensive and more expensive for you to actually reach your own fans, your own people anyway. And so that's, that's the big problem is that over time, a lot of these, especially digital advertising based places, they're all auctions and they're only going to get more expensive. Yeah. The, the irony is, and a lot of people don't understand this on Facebook that uh, if you want to never see somebody again, just like their page. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then Facebook will never show you their stuff ever again, unless that person pays to connect with you. So it's the most bizarre thing that they, they encourage you to connect with all your friends and get them to like your page and all your stuff. But the second you like their page, then you got to pay Facebook to see the stuff that's on your page. It's, it's a very, uh, you know, it's very smart, very counterintuitive, but uh, I guess it's working for them. You know, you know what, like on Facebook, let's say you buy uh, ads, talk about this diminishing return thing still. Uh, you buy ads and you say, okay, we're going to run ads in the New York City area. Then we're going to run them in New Jersey. Then we're going to run them in Philadelphia. Then we're going to run them in Washington, D.C. And you kind of move around the country. Then you're not, you're not seeing the same people over and over. You're, does it still diminish over time? Not as much. So it's a slower diminishing. And that's also true, not just based on geography, but if you also use things like custom audiences on Facebook, not to get too nerdy and go down a rabbit hole, but if you use lookalike audiences based on your current customers, for instance, if you're, if you're targeting people in new areas that you already know should be more predisposed to receiving what you want to sell them, you, you can still maintain like a good ratio in terms of like ad spend. To, to yeah. We've had problems using Facebook for, uh, for advertising. First of all, it's very labor intensive. It's a much, much more intensive than you think. I mean, you have to have somebody dedicated to doing this sort of thing. 
you know, they have to be paying attention. They have to really know what they're doing. They have to be very well trained in this sort of thing. It's not just something you pick up over the weekend. Uh, the other thing is, is that the Facebook algorithms have kicked a lot of stuff out, like anything in real estate, anything related to money, anything, you know, there's all these different things that, that there's all these federal guidelines that Facebook is afraid of. And they've just basically kicked everything out that relates to any of these, you know, equal opportunity situations. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard. It's challenging because it's, um, we've seen similar stuff with Google ads and AdWords, but it's, it's been probably less, less involvement in a sense of like, they don't deny like supplement companies, for example, I think at least for the longest time, supplement companies were always an issue on Facebook. They, they're, their guidelines are suspiciously strict for advertising as opposed to just like, you know, any old normal stuff that you can put up on Facebook and they don't seem to mind or, or, or too much to take down or police. But on the advertising side, they, they do keep it like really strict in terms of what's allowed and what's not. Yeah. So what's, so what's the secret? I mean, so you've got, you know, your firm, uh, you know, does, I mean, do you run these campaigns for people or do you have some secret sauce that's better than just running a campaign? Yeah, so we don't run a lot of active campaigns, advertising campaigns for companies. Um, my company, Codeless, is a content production company. So we're the ones creating and publishing all the assets is how I like to phrase it, just as a point of comparison. Um, and, and on this topic, I think one of the things that, how do, you, how do you maintain or possibly decrease ad spend on Facebook a little bit? You increase the quality of the content that you're advertising. So it is kind of one of those things that helps give you a little bit more control, but then it also opens you up to a lot of other avenues outside of any one channel um, where you can start bringing in traffic from search engines and other places. So that's essentially what we do. We aren't, we aren't technically managing campaigns for a lot of these companies. You are producing content that they then use in their campaigns. How do you keep the content from being stale or static? I mean, you know, you, you're, you're, you put the content out there and like, like in a newspaper, you put it out there and it's like static. That's it. You get one thing, but on Facebook, it can shuffle up. I mean, do you address that? Yeah. For a lot of companies, we update the, the same content when I'm producing. So for example, for a lot of publishers online, we'll create like product reviews. As you could imagine, everything about a product changes over the course of a few months or a few years uh, in terms of like a software product. So new features might come out. Um, pricing will change and fluctuate, all these different things happen. So what we'll do a lot of times is every three months, every six months, 12 months, we'll go through and re-review and actually update the existing content. And the, the value of that is you're leveraging both. You're, you're keeping the original content on your site the same for search engines, but then you're updating it to maintain relevancy and you're able to come out and promote it again, just like a brand new piece of content. And, and the search engines like... Uh refreshment right they, they like when it's uh new and relevant so forth they do the, the trick is how do you balance the two because they also prefer older established websites and content but the actual stuff on the page needs to be refreshed and updated like you're saying so the that's the trick is constantly how do you balance the two how do you publish content around a certain space or around a certain topic that you know that your business is always going to be involved in but then know that you're going to have to keep it fresh and keep it updated over time. Well, the other thing is that, that Google is changing its algorithm all the time. Yep. And, and they don't call you up and say, by the way, we're changing the algorithm. Here's the new thing. You know, I mean, so how do you deal with that? Uh, we test a lot. And so this is where you can follow best practices to a degree. The good news is, despite 
Google constantly changing things, the, the macro goals and principles that we're shooting for are always the same. And that is someone's searching for something. They have a specific question they're trying to answer. You want to present them with the best all around answer to whatever that is. So as long as you keep optimizing for that, you should be okay in the long run. And in the short term, we test a lot. So you, you might change headlines. You might change how you use images or how you format a page. You might, there's, there's little variables that you can kind of like fluctuate and, and change and update. And then you watch, you watch and learn basically. You know, these companies like Facebook, Google, and the other big ones, uh, they use a lot of artificial intelligence to uh, really track and learn uh, our behaviors because they're keeping track of so many different data points. Is there artificial intelligence on, on our side that we can kind of get a sense about what they're doing? I mean, is it working in reverse? Yes. Um, that's the good news is that you can kind of fight fire with fire. So, for example, on Google, if you typed in, um, I, let's say you typed in like uh, how to find a job in 2020 or during coronavirus or something, a lot of times you'll see little indicators on the actual search engine result page that tell you or help you understand what people are looking for when they search for that. So there'll be a little box that says people also ask when they say this initial keyword. Um, and when you start clicking down those and when you start looking at related searches, that starts to give you an idea of what Google thinks this person's searching for when they look for this. And so therefore you can factor that into like the content you're gonna create. Um, there's also new tools coming out. Uh, a couple of them are MarketMuse is one of them, ClearScope's another, and there's a few more. And these are similar tools where they're basically taking one keyword and they're scanning all the content that currently ranks for that. And then they're trying to help you prioritize. Uh, these are the questions people are asking. These are the, the semantic keywords or like related topics that you should include. So they're, they're trying to help bridge the gap between uh, essentially what they're, they're trying to replicate what search engines are doing, if that makes sense. So they're trying to help you understand here, here's what we think Google is looking at and what they're valuing or, or not valuing. How important are keywords these days? I mean, are, are, they, are they like real important or, you know, what do you think? They are. It's, it's tricky because it's become a lot more, everything's become a lot more nuanced. And so keywords are important because you're, you're trying to target something to answer that initial problem or question. Where this becomes tricky or difficult is that in some cases, that article that you write, for instance, it might not just rank for one keyword, it might rank for like five closely related ones. So what's happening is Google's doing a better job understanding search intent. And so if people say one thing, they might mean something else. So they're, they're doing better at understanding that. And then on the other side, on the flip side, businesses, companies need to do a better job of looking beyond the keyword. Uh, and looking at other topics that this is involved in. So if we talk about uh, where this gets tricky, for example, let's take engineer. Engineer could be civil engineer, could be, could be software engineer, could be like several different types of engineers. So then you have to like go down a step further and the stuff that's gonna be relevant to like a software engineer are gonna be very different from like a civil engineer. And so each, each keyword then, or each sub keyword would have like its own basket of topics that you'd have to address. And so that's, that's where things become a lot more complex today is that there's a lot more nuance and fine lines uh, and, and a lot less black and white, if that makes sense. Is there like um, a strategy you can share on keywords? I mean, I, what I notice is people do like a hashtag, went on a roller coaster at my favorite uh, water park today. I, I mean, 
that that doesn't seem to me like to be the intent of hashtags or or they'll say uh you know hashtag went to the car dealership and got a blue car i mean i mean it, that doesn't seem to be what hashtags are for so could you just run through that for us yeah definitely the, the key to thinking about keywords and hashtags are to, to take a step back and, and under, better understand how you search for things um, without even thinking about it. So if I'm going to search for restaurants, for example, there's a couple different qualifiers I could use. It could be location. So it could be, and that could be down to like the city level or it could be down to like the neighborhood level um, or just one retail district versus another. So location is one um, type of restaurant or category could be another uh, star rating or price point. So you could be, it could be like a French rest, a nice four star French restaurant versus, uh, like in and out hamburger place. That's one star or not like one, you know, one, one, uh, little pricing indicator. By the way, many, many places would give them a lot of stars. I think so too. Way. I know I would, I would rate the star <laughs> rating a lot higher. I was thinking of price. But, <laughs> so price point is like one indicator, um, type or style or category location. So I, once you, once you start grouping things based on grouping information based on that, that's what helps you find better keywords and hashtags because you better understand how to make whatever it is you're going to talk about more relevant to those people based on these different qualifiers or criteria. Well, it lets, it lets you find uh, all the posts that have that same hashtag in it. You know, let's say it's hashtag in and out burger, you know, all the, posts that have in and out burger in them are all going to show up together and you can look through them and see what you're looking for, right? That's the goal. Exactly. And you, you can, know, so if yeah. you pick something that's, that's really off the wall that no one will ever think of, there'll be, there'll be one or zero uh, entries in that thing. When you click on the, on the hashtag. Exactly. And you can like, you can really take this uh, a lot further. So for example, if we're talking about Irvine, California, there's or orange County, California, there's probably 10 in and outs. So if then you look at, so if you start layering these, if you take in and out Laguna Niguel, it's in a very specific, then you can look at, okay, well, who's referencing and promoting that in and out in Laguna Niguel. And then those become your, your, your targets, your people that you want to attract with whatever keywords, hashtags, uh, just emailing them directly, getting them on the phone. Like you could go old school with this stuff. It doesn't have to be, um, like you said, at the very beginning, it's often better to actually try to meet these people and make connections with these people because the friendships or whatever is going to have, it's going to, you know, Hey, can you link me in your newsletter? Hey, can you promote me on your website? Hey, can you give me something on, on Instagram? You can kind of like help you help each other in multiple different ways. Well, I, I sort of guess it depends on the price of the product. If the, uh, if you're selling something for $20, uh, you're not meeting people. You're just uh, burning through a lot of leads. If you're selling something for $5,000, uh, then you'll have a salesman call or a salesperson call them up, work them for a little bit. But if you're selling something for a million or $5 million, then you probably need to meet in person and start to create some relationship, uh, you know, because it's going to be a little bit of a longer transaction time. I mean, so yeah, whatever's relevant for your business, you have to figure out, you know, high volume, medium volume, low volume. And as the volume goes up, so does the, uh, it's the, the opposite of about relationship building. Yeah, no, that's a really good distinction. I, I was also thinking of it. Um, I wasn't thinking about individual customers promoting that in and out in Laguna Niguel. I'm thinking of other businesses. I'm thinking of other organizations. So what are the kind of like you're referencing? What are like the leverage points? If you do have a low price product and you need to re reach a lot of people, 
then it's really costly for me to go to each individual person. But if I go to some hospitality group of South Orange County that promotes like 30 different businesses, then that's how I can leverage my time and spend better is I'm going to, I'm going to the places I'm working with the, the people who are going to put me in front of a lot of people at one time. So whose, whose job is it to put together those affiliate relationships? Is it the marketing manager in a company? Do they go to an agency that's already doing that sort of thing? I mean, how do you form those relationships? I mean, that's very labor intensive and it's just not everybody's skill. No, it's not. Uh, it's different at different types of companies, for example. So big, big software companies, we work with a lot of software companies and they'll have affiliate divisions, for instance. They'll have like people dedicated to that. It, a lot of times you don't have that or it's not as well organized. Uh, a lot of times you can just pay for access is often easier. So if that means a consultant in a certain space, an agency in a certain space where they have like a very deep, you know, black book of connections in a very particular, uh, very particular like niche or, or vertical, um, or organizations too. So if that's where it might make sense to explore like all the different types of local associations and other things where just paying for access is usually the easiest way. And so if you can, if you can sponsor a conference and part of that sponsorship means you can speak in front of a uh, hundred restaurant executives or whoever, whatever audience you're trying to reach, a lot of times that's often the, just the, the most direct route. Well, that's, that's, that's the main reason that a lot of people sponsor conferences is so that they can put their message into the audience in an effective way. So let, let's talk about this. Uh, you know, there are some very sophisticated methods that uh, companies are using. One, one of my favorite ones that I've, I've never used it, but I've heard people talk about this called geofencing. And I was listening to a podcast last night uh, where Uber was doing some tricky stuff in 2014 uh, some stuff that Apple didn't like. And Apple had the ability to turn off their access to the uh, Apple store, you know, so that all the all their customers where they get their app. And so uh, what Uber did, and you got to give them credit for being smart. I mean, it was dirty, but it was smart. What they, what they said was that uh, we want this, uh, we want to leave a little cookie in everybody's phone, even if they take the app off so we can keep track of them or whatever they're doing. But we, if anybody who falls in this zip code, which is where Apple's headquarters was, uh, is treated differently than the rest of the country. So Apple wasn't ever able to replicate the problem, you know, and, and so it took a long time for them to figure this out that people would call in. So something's going weird and Apple couldn't figure it out. And, you know, but how do companies use this geofencing concept? Because I've heard that it is really, really cool. Yeah, it's like so. I mean, it's still done this way, but back in the day, TV, radio, you just blank, you just kind of, you know, blanket uh, a zip code without real insight as to like who's coming in or out of that zip code or, or, you know, like demographics, but that's pretty much it. You don't know like psychographics. You don't know, you don't have a lot of like insight. You're just kind of saying, okay, we're just going to blanket these areas and, and hope that sales go up. And if they do, if sales go up and there's a correlation, then we win. Um, so social, uh, mobile, all these things allow you to do that, but like on steroids. So now you're really able to track when someone comes in or out of a zip code, for instance. Um, you're able to get a lot more nuance in terms of like neighborhoods within, within a zip code um, and proximity too. So if you're within X, X amount of miles of a, of a sp specific location, um, you can also target different things too, and target different ads. And so a lot of, to be honest, a lot of these major platforms have a lot of this type of advertising already. 
So Facebook, it's, it's funny, but it's not funny in that there's this huge outbreak of cause for concern a year or two ago about what Facebook was allowing people to do and, and what types of uh, information they were allowing people to get. But you can pay for a lot of that same stuff you know, today. You, you can pay to target people within these very tight, tightly defined areas and based on really specific information about individuals, purchasing patterns, all that kind of stuff. You know, you know this whole show... This whole show is about the inside track, you know, the best, smartest, fastest ways to get things done. And you're absolutely sharing the inside track. I mean, these are a lot of the things that happen behind the curtain that most of us don't know. One of the coolest things that I've heard people talk about this concept of geofencing is, um, let's say you're, you're, there's a software conference in New York City at Javits, let's just say, and a huge conference of some kind. And you're a software and you're, you're like some supplier, but you didn't go to the conference. You can place your ad and just have it go to Javits, people who are at Javits Center. And, and so those people are seeing your ad every 30 seconds. They're going, my God, these people are blanketing the, the whole place. But only the people at Javits are actually seeing it. it I mean, is that is that working? I mean, that to me, that just it's too smart for uh, for words. I mean, it's it, to me, it seems pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it is working. And especially when you when you can combine it with other stuff. So they can also see, for instance, you can, you can not only control that location portion, but you can also say, look, if someone if someone happens to be in this area, but they're not in the software industry, or they don't work for like a Fortune 100 or something, uh, don't show them the ad. So you could start layering a lot of these different things in to one campaign and get super specific to who you're targeting. And, and that means for the people you are targeting that are a good fit, you can really be aggressive on ramping up spend because you know that it's going to be worth it. And so I, I think the, the broader uh, consumer market doesn't really understand or get how much of their personal information is kind of being used against them to target ads based on past websites they visited, uh, where they work, how much money they make, their, their race and ethnicity. Like all these things really do get factored in. I mean, it's it's actually shocking to me how much, uh, you know, data, and, and I guess this is all what's called big data, when they aggregate, you know, billions of pieces of information together. So, you know, uh, I don't know, it's not your credit report, but information about you personally, like Facebook collects some stuff, and then they buy a lot of information about you. Are they buying things like what you buy at Costco? Yeah. I mean, I mean, are, are they aggregating? Because Costco knows every every can of lima beans that you buy. I mean, they know everything. For sure. So, I mean, is Facebook getting that information too? Yeah, a lot of big, um, a lot of big companies are buying and like collating all this data. So Target, for instance, will send you like direct mail based on like what you've just purchased. And so one of the, like the infamous examples is if you're buying like pregnancy tests at Target, then they'll send you direct mail about like formula and diapers. And all this other stuff that they know you're going to need based on like what you actually purchase. And so the same thing happens if they know if they know you live in a specific zip code where your average income is higher. Then I don't know. Maybe they're going to they're going to send you the the high end diapers, the honest, expensive diapers, not the cheap commoditized like brand name diapers. And so again, like all this stuff is is happening and is getting factored into the stuff that that people are seeing on a daily basis and they don't even realize why or where it's coming from or how it's how it's relevant. Well, you certainly have to give these guys credit for being smart. I'll tell you that. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's quite invasive and it's kind of disturbing, but you have to take a step back and say, wow, these people are really smart. So what are some things that, uh, that 
that, you know, middle-sized companies, uh, you know, are these uh, 20, 50, $100 million companies, what can they do? Which of these uh, applications, you know, can they, can they use to their advantage? Yeah. And it's, it's tough because in an ideal world um, you need to, you need to understand how they all work together. And so in other words, face, as you talked about at the very beginning, Facebook, reaching your own fans on Facebook uh, is becoming a lot less effective. And so you can still advertise and advertising is going to get more expensive, but if you know what you're doing, then you can still make it all work. And so in other words, advertising on Facebook, you might have several different campaigns, one for the top of the funnel where you're trying to reach brand new people, one for the middle or bottom of the funnel where you're trying to get people that now that they know who you are and they're aware of the problem they have and they're looking for solutions. And you want to dovetail that with other stuff. So you want to dovetail that with what's happening on your website. What are, are people visiting blog posts on your website? Are they visiting case studies? Did they put something in the cart, but they didn't finish? And then you want to tie your ads back into all that stuff. So if someone's the, the way to get more, you know, more better leverage out of your advertising is to say brand new people who haven't been to our website before, let's just give them a blog post. If they've been to our website and they've looked at a case study page, then let's send them a product sale offer. If they've been to the product and they've added to their cart, but they haven't completed the purchase, then let's send them really targeted sales messaging around um, that product. And maybe it's expiring. Maybe the price is going to go up next week if they don't, if they don't purchase. Most companies cannot do this internally. Uh, I mean, I mean, it, it, what you're talking about, you don't just wake up in the morning and come up with these kinds of campaigns and figure out what to do. I mean, these are highly specialized people that are probably with agencies. Um, is that kind of the bottom line is that, you know, if you want to be in the game, you got to hire people that know what they're doing. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, to a degree. Yeah. I, I think that the problem will always be, uh, you, you need experts, you need subject matter experts in this stuff because for instance, SEO used to mean one thing and today it means something else. So 15 years ago, SEO was fairly straightforward and easy today it's really complex. And so there's local SEO, there's technical SEO, there's on-page, there's off-page off like link building content. So there's all these like various facets now. And the problem that I would see for most companies is that you need to, you need to understand where the problem lies. But, but on, on the plus side, there's better tools and there's better, there's better tools that are more readily available for like mid-market companies where it's not just enterprise stuff. So for example, um, HubSpot in the marketing space does a really good job of actually like helping people pull all this data in. It's still expensive, but again, it's cost. Cost in marketing should be relative because it should be, well, what are you getting for what you're spending? Um, if, if you're spending more, but you're getting a lot more, then maybe it's worth it. Right. It's, it's, it's not, it's not an absolute number. It's, it's a relative yep. number to the amount of, uh, uh, to really what it provides. One more example real quick is on, on the Facebook, cause we spent so much time there would be like Ad Espresso, who's actually one of our clients on the content side. Um, but Ad Espresso is a tool that helps you create all these campaigns. And what they, what they do is really cool. They, they let you create different, um, advertisements. They help you test different channels in the same campaign. So it'll just run this stuff for you. Even if you don't know what you're doing, it'll run it for you. And then it'll tell you, okay, we're going to pause this channel because you're, you're spending way too much there. And we're going to like focus your budget uh, wh where it is actually working. And so there are better tools like that that take a lot of the, the heavy lifting off your plate as long as you kind of know, you know the basics. Well, listen, Brad, that's, uh, that's the inside track. And I appreciate you sharing the inside track with, uh, with the listeners from Profit From The Inside because that's, 
this stuff, what you're talking about is really complicated, but it also is really urgent for companies to take advantage because their competitors are taking advantage of these tools. And if they don't do it, uh, then they're going to be left behind. And, and I'm all about helping companies to disrupt their, their competitors' future. And you can't do it if you're not using some state-of-the-art tools. So uh, thank you for being with us. We're going to uh, put your uh, contact information in the show notes because you are a wonderful resource for companies to reach out to. So thank you very much for being on the show and uh, hopefully we'll stay in touch. Yeah, thanks, Joel. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joe Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 72000. That's 72000. And download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.